Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Dan Pfeiffer. I'm a co-host of Pod Save America, and I was here most recently for my recent book, Battling the Big Lie. I'm pleased to be back here in an actual event with people in person, which is very exciting. And I'm pleased to be joined by my friend Tim Miller, who is a longtime Republican consultant. Former. Former. Former Republican consultant and author of the new book, Why We Did It, during his time in the Republican Party. Tim worked for many candidates, the RNC. He worked on the famous RNC autopsy, the 2012 election, of which all of whose followings uh, recommendations were adopted to a T, uh, uh, which we will talk about. He is he's also served as co-founder and political director of the advocacy group Republican Voters Against Trump, and he is now a writer for The Bulwark. In his new book, Why We Did It, Tim cuts through the past two decades of political shifts, compromises, and decisions made by the GOP and how it set us on a collision course for 2016, Donald Trump, and everything that happened on January 6th. Tim's book is great. It is a funny, raw, accurate diagnosis of politics, the Republican Party, and really more than almost anything I've read over the last few years helps explain how we got to this moment right now from the, from the point of view of someone who was there to see it all in the front row. So... Please, please welcome Tim to the Commonwealth Club. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tim. Right. I like being in your seat better. Yeah, that's right. Back next. Trust me, it's going to be very tough questions. Um, as you interjected to point out, you're a former Republican consultant. You have been about as vocal against your party as any member of the Republican establishment, not nameless Cheney, has been over the last many years. Um, but before... Before we get to the former part, let's ask, why did you become a Republican in the first place? What led you down that path to current Republican politics? Yeah, I was a pretty dorky child, <laughs> um, and uh, I was attracted to politics as a young age. Actually, at the very start, I was, uh, I, my interest in politics began when I had a bet with my grandmother. <laughs> she thought that uh, uh, George H.W. Bush would beat Bill Clinton. I just sensed that that was not going to happen. I don't know why. <laughs> as a fifth grader, and so we had a $1 bet, which I won, um, and that kind of got me addicted to politics. And frankly, um, I think I was attracted, if you look back to 96 and 2000, which are the first campaigns that got me into politics, I was attracted to this notion of the Republican Party as being one of free markets and free people, one that helped where, you know, get rid of the limits on individuals' ability to achieve success. You know, my father was, sorry for the cliche, an up, for, up from his bootstraps kind of guy <laughs> that, gained, uh, that gained success. And so that part of it appealed to me. Uh, this notion that we were a shining city on a hill. Remember that when Republicans <laughs> thought we were a shining city on a hill and people might want to come here and that, yes. that, uh, that would, it would be appealing to be here because... Yeah. Uh, of of our freedoms and our society was Reagan so never mentioned the wall around the <laughs> he hill. Didn't mention, yes. Yeah, yes. Was, sorry. <laughs> with, with moats, with alligators and yes. moats, was around yes. the hill. So that all that appealed to me. Um, and then, uh, you know, as I get into in the book, I think once I got into politics, it very quickly went from those kind of earnest reasons mm-hmm. of being drawn to to the Republicans to really enjoying the game and enjoying the sport of it and wanting to win, and wanting to beat other uh, the other side. And I think that during our era. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of common. It was more common on my side, I think, yeah. than on your side. But this notion that, eh, 
you know, we liked the West Wing, and, you know, for whatever reason, my, your family was Republican or Democrat, you ended up on a team, and now you're in Washington, and once you're on a team in Washington, it's hard to get off it, you know, you're yeah. not going to get hired by the Democrats. I, I interviewed one guy from the book who is a very high-level Republican now who said he's never voted for a Republican for president in his life. I was like, <laughs> I was like that's a pretty odd, like, little uh, fact about something in politics. I mean, did he, he just, vote for Democrats, or did he vote for Yeah, no, I, in 2008, he, the Palin freaked him out, yeah. and he thought it was cool that, to vote for the first black president, so he did, and then he sat out 2012, and then Trump came around, yeah. and all of a sudden, you know, he's working for a Republican governor at the top levels of the party. He voted for the person he worked for, but, uh, you know, he, and, and, but I, you know, I asked him, I said, well, could you have worked for Obama, do you think? And he said, yeah, I, you know, I just, I kind of barely fell on this one side of the line in 2008 when the stakes just didn't feel as high. And I know that you probably didn't feel that way in 2008, but I, if you look at McCain and Obama, um, I, I think it's easy to understand how people rationalize that, right? Like yeah. John McCain was a person of dignity and integrity, uh, serves a country. He believed that climate change is a problem and that we should have a cap and trade <laughs> deal. He wanted to welcome immigrants. He didn't yeah. think that we should torture people. Right? You know, the notion that there were these like huge <laughs> fundamental differences between those two, you know, there were real differences, but, but you can see how someone kind of wrapped up in the sport of it might decide, okay, like I just, I really like, you know, I'm a person who has a job to do and I enjoy that job and that's what I'm going to do first and foremost. And, and I definitely found myself in that camp. And like, the, like you obviously have been, you've been on cable a lot over the last six years. You've Spot, you've been part of many political groups attacking Trump. You have been very vocally critical of other members of your party on Twitter. But writing this book is like a different step, right? Like the book talks, the first half of the book is about you and your journey, about how you ended up at this point. It is also, but the second half is really about some of the people who you know, you have worked with, had like real, some were even maybe mentors to you or people you trusted who have gone on to sort of, debase themselves in service of Trump and to write about them in these explicit ways, you know, burn some bridges. I mean, maybe they were burned already, but just talk to me a little bit about the process of deciding to write the book and maybe what the, what the, if there's been fallout or blowback from some of the people yeah. you have written about. Well, I felt like there were two elements of the book that kind of represent this first half and second half yeah. that also represent my motivations for doing it. One is I felt like there was like a sense of atonement, right? Mm. Even though I had fought Trump, as you said, I, you know, I still kind of felt icky uh, looking mm. back on some of the stuff that I did. And I felt like, you know, when I, you know how the publishing business goes, I get a call from an agent and they're like, I want you to write a book that's like the 10 douchiest Trump grifters in America. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we'll sell a million copies. <laughs> yes. And I was like, that's kind of appealing. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you know, then I thought, oh man, I, I don't think I can really write that book yeah. like, in good conscience without kind of reckoning with mm. what I, you know, my complicity and, and how I was part, part of this. And I feel like for readers of good faith, if I'm going to get anyone who is persuadable, you know, maybe some Pod Save America listeners <laughs> would have liked that book. But yeah. like, if I'm going to get anybody that's persuadable, I, I need to take some accountability. So I, the first half of it was really kind of reflecting on myself. You know, if I'm going to understand how my friends and mentors went along with something that's immoral or unethical or evil, uh, I can have to look back at how I did, right? And so uh, I think that was kind of the motivation for the first part. And then the second part was really a curiosity, mm -hmm. right? Like, I, it, like rather than write about, you know, the Stephen Millers and the mm -hmm. worst of the worst, I, I wanted to write about people that I, I felt like 
there was a little bit of a gray area, mm-hmm. like the people who knew better, the people who told me they knew better, because I still didn't, despite having lived all this for six years, I still didn't feel like I fully understood why literally all of my friends and colleagues <laughs> like went along with this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 97.5% of the people that I worked with went along with this. And, and I, in that, when you say went along with it, like that is degrees of people who you write about, like your book, like yeah. your friend Caroline Wren, who whose name well, is on the January Stop the Steal permit yeah. to people who work just for ra- stayed in the party and work for random members of Congress or in exactly. leadership. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that there's different gradations of of how they justified yeah. it. Right. Like somebody like Caroline, obviously, which we can talk about, got basically sucked up into the cult and like fully believed all of the MAGA nonsense. So my other friends, many of whom are not on the record in the story, but who I wanted to like speak to me honestly, you know, decided that they couldn't work for Trump. Right. But that wouldn't stop them from working for, you know, random senators, Cory Gardner. You can, you know, you can list all the different Republican senators who are varying degrees of normal. And, and I just, you know, (laughs) they, uh, they, I kind of got it right. Like at some level, you know, you're like, well, money and they have a job and a career, Uh, you know, so at at a surface level, I got it. But I I felt like I really wanted to dig deeper and understand, you know, maybe there were things that I didn't know about them. Right. Maybe, you know, this whole time I thought I was playing this big game and I was kind of this moderate Republican and they were way more conservative than I realized. (laughs) And I was just kind of filling in the blanks in my head. Um, and you know, one of the things I discovered in those conversations, uh, was a lot of them did have like a much deeper well of hatred (laughs) for the left and for Obama in particular. I thought this was an interesting insight was the the people of of my friends who went along with Trump to a person hated Obama much more than the small, (laughs) the few of us never Trumpers, right? Like the whole time I kind of was like, I disagreed with Obama. I I didn't love, you know, Obamacare could have been better. Solyndra wasn't that great, right? (laughs) But I don't know. Me and you could have go to the bar afterwards and have a beer. Like I I didn't hate him, right? I would love to go to sit at a basketball game with Obama. The, The people that I interviewed... Uh, you know, what I discovered was I didn't, this whole kind of cafe be this fake show of yeah. performative fighting that I thought I was doing a lot for a lot of them. It was more real than I, than I realized. And why did you think they hated Obama? <laughs> why do you think they hated Obama? Look, I, I think there's a broader uh, question about <laughs> race in this, but I don't want to assign yeah. the, no, well, that is the animating part yeah. of a lot of obviously how we get to this point, how the, part of how the Republican get, party gets here, but there are, I don't know, I don't want to assume that's the only or primary yeah. reason these people who work in politics so I feel that way. Yeah, no, race obviously has a part of it. You know, you you hear the things that um, that like maybe don't sound racist on the surface, but it's like, ah, you know, Bob was so condescending. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. was he? Yeah. I, I didn't feel that way. I mean, maybe I don't know, yeah. um, more condescending than your average politician. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so there was, I think, clearly a racial, ele- and with the base, there was clearly yeah. a racial, I, I, almost an explicit racial yeah. element. You know, you look back at the Tea Party movement, right, and this notion that that was about government spending right. <laughs> like, is preposterous in retrospect, yes. right? And um, at the time, though, it's kind of, she's like, okay, maybe it's about government spending, but, but it's clear that, like, had Obama's first bill been you know, whatever, cap and trade, you know, they would have pretended they were mad about that or abortion, you know, it uh, it was this sort of racial and also, uh, you know, cultural, you know, which race is an element of, but also this sort of elite coastal versus real America um, element. So I I think that is part of, that is part of the reason for sure. Mm. Um, I also, as I get into in the book is for a lot of these folks, it is 
unfortunately, like just this base (laughs) annoyance with liberals in their life uh, that gets kind of projected onto all everybody, not just Obama, not just black Democrats, but like Elizabeth Warren or any, you know, which could be a little bit of sexism. But uh, Joe Biden now even gets it. You know, Lindsey Graham famously in Jonathan Martin's book said on January 6th, like, yeah, what's the, what's the, how could people get mad at Joe Biden? Maybe this will be a good moment for the country to come together. And it's like, well, they found things to be mad at Joe Biden about. So, you know, I, I do think that um, what kept coming up in the Caroline conversation that I got to put on the record that was that that really kind of stopped maybe just me tell short. people a little bit who Caroline. Yeah, sure. it's a frame. It's a framing part of the book. I think. Yeah, right? sure. So Caroline Rose is a good friend of mine, um, and uh, like a really personal friend. You have DC friends. Me and Dan are DC friends. Yes. You know, we've never had dinner together, but uh, <laughs> Caroline is like a personal friend. Yes. You know, we had talked about you know our life option or, or relationship troubles, and um, you know she was a very moderate Republican. Worked with me on John Huntsman's campaign. Worked for a lot of rhinos. Um, you know, uh, I tell the books in the story about how she on her own flies to germany to like bring gifts to refugees like this is a person that is not a hateful person in their heart at least to my experience and um she gets sucked up into trump world uh, it's kind of by accident she's the finance director for the rnc convention you don't think trump's gonna win trump wins the convention and then all of a sudden you get in this bunker mode she becomes very defensive of him and, and of his people and then you start to enjoy the access and kind of the yeah. star power of it all of a sudden you're hanging out with the family you're backstage you're on trump force one mm. this all makes me sick but <laughs> i can understand how somebody might get sucked up mm. in this and, um, you know, and, and eventually she just kind of gets caught up in the accoutrement of being around a president, being on the inside circle. And she ends up, as you said, on January 6th, having her name on the permit for the for the mall because she was doing, you know, advance or whatever, mm-hmm. setting up the chairs for, for the VIPs. Um, and so we went and had drinks in Santa Monica for like six or seven hours. And I was like, I need to understand this. Like, how did we go so far apart? Like, I thought we were the same. We were both moderate Republicans. Like, uh, you know, how can you be fully Trump cult and, and me be never Trumper? And, uh, you know, there are a lot of revelations in that conversation, um, you know, because we had so many tequilas. Uh, but <laughs> like the one thing that I, mean, like, I was hungover just reading that. Again, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> another round. Um, uh, but the one thing that really stuck out to me that just kind of stopped being short is, uh, you know, we, we kept going back and forth on all the various issues and why are you mad at this? And what do you think about this and that? And finally I get to, I, I just don't get it. Like, do you, is there something about him you really, really like, or is all of it just, you've come to hate all of the people that hate Trump? And she like thinks about it for a second. And then says, I really think it's the, it's the latter. She's like, I'm just so sick of these liberals and their Priuses with their coexist stickers, drinking their coffee culottas and telling me and wagging their finger at me and making me drink my, out of my paper straw. I'm like, I hate paper straws too, but what does that have to do with Donald Trump? Like nothing. Like, um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that that was the most stark example yeah. of a conversation that I had 20 of when writing this book. You know, every normal, Republican um, that I talked to, uh, you know, the conversation would go and go, and eventually you get to a point where they'd start, you, you know, you'd get under a layer, and they'd, be, they'd have this grievance, and sometimes it'd be about their kid's school and the DEI packets, and sometimes mm. it'd be about the media's being mean to them, and sometimes it'd be that their friend won't talk to them anymore because they say they're a racist because they work mm. for Donald Trump, and whatever it is, like these various grievances and hatreds of the left ended up kind of allowing them to rationalize what they did. And is it, do you, it, and it, like to try to unpack that a second, is that because they think he will 
fight harder against these forces or is a more effective fighter or he's tougher than the other Republicans or he just can be sort of their asshole id in public? Yeah. Well, for some, it's the asshole id. Yeah. You know, Rich Lowry said this. And yeah. was the head of the New York National Review, which is supposed to be like the erudite, uh, you know, journal of conservative thought. It's and now, he, now it's polysyllabic federalist. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, he, uh, he wrote an article like, like two weeks before the election this year. It's like, Donald Trump is a middle finger to all the people that you hate in yeah. America. And I was just like, really? This yeah. is why you're voting for Donald Trump? And it just seems so childish. Yeah. Um, and he's supposed to be like the editor of the thought of the... William F. Buckley, you know, the inheritor of conservative thought. Um, but so they're just varying copycats of that. And so for some people, Dan, I think it was like Caroline, it just tickled something inside them. This like emotion of they are mad at, at the left or the changes in the country. I think for people out in America, for some of them, it's like they're mad about the changing racial dynamics. And like when they watch their movies, the white people aren't the heroes anymore. You know, like things that are as simple as that. And then for a lot of my friends that I focused on in the book, um, I, I really think for them it was more of a rationalization. Like the one guy that I remember that stands out to me, he says to me something like, you know, I hate him and there's not much I like about him, but you know, the way I'm treated, it's a white guy, obviously, um, the way I'm treated <laughs> by woke culture, you know, it just has left me no option but to f- just to really grab onto the one or two things I really agree with him on and focus on that while I continue along the, my the, job. They, they made me do it strategy. Yeah, the they or, made me do it strategy. Or, yeah. And I was just like, that, man, that is like... I can't believe you had just admitted that to me yeah. on the telephone. I mean, I know we're off the record, but I'm going to know who you yeah. are. Um, <laughs> uh, but, I, but I think but the point, I think the interesting thing is that in that culture, which I'm like not in anymore, yeah. which, I, which is why that was the most surprising thing to me in doing these interviews, I, I just think that that's kind of conversation, right? Like at the bar when, around the other Republican political types, like, you know, who know better, who know about Donald Trump's. Um, you know, how dangerous he is, like, that's how they make themselves feel better. In your, you know, in your political journey, right, working for McCain, working for, working for Huntsman, trying to help Romney beat Obama, Jeb Bush, um, where the, Jeb Bush was down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, did, were there, I mean, before, let's go before Jeb Bush, yeah. that, like, that's when you're feeling with Trump, but were there some moments on that journey where you saw the party turning in ways that were alarming that, you know, whether it's stuff in the tea party or elsewhere, there were sort of warning signs to you, at least of a date, even if it didn't mean that Donald Trump would be president one day, but like a dangerous undercurrent within the party that made you uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, this, this book starts in Iowa with Sarah Palin in 08 with McCain. And, and um, I'm sure this stuff goes back further than that. You know, if this one, you want to write a history book, you can go back to Goldwater or whatever. But, um, uh, you know, I was there, so I was in Iowa in '07, I guess, uh, in this primary. And McCain at that time is is working with Ted Kennedy on an immigration reform bill, um, which shows that you know, as bad as the party has always been, like yeah. there was some good stuff happening yeah. back then. Um, uh, there has been some change. Uh, so he's doing that, and every question at the town hall we're getting is about immigration, amnesty, and this like weird conspiracy theory about the NAFTA superhighway, and they're all mad at him. They all hate him. Mm. Um, and McCain's poll, st- poll numbers tank, 
And, you know, I'm off the campaign after that because he has to fire everybody. He can't, he can't afford uh, staff. And then, you know, he has this rebound mostly because none of the other candidates are very good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and during his rebound, he shifts his immigration rhetoric a little bit. And McCain-Kennedy dies. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't become Donald Trump, but, you know, he starts to sort of do the thing, which is like, well, we can't let, do any immigration reform until we have a, a wall. He does, the, you know, later he goes on to do the build the dang fence out. And then the general Palin happens, and, and the crowds at the Palin event were like that mccain caucus crowd but yeah. like on steroids right it's all the the deplorables you know right. 10 years later right there's mccain these they're feral the pay mm-hmm. the mccain rallies are like very staid and the palin rallies are like people yeah. shouting about how obama's a muslim so i, I it's obviously was in 08 it was all there yeah. you know which is like why i felt like i had to do the mea culpa part because i saw it i knew it and um you know i slowly get sucked back in because john huntsman's a moderate and then you know you're on the career ladder uh, so I think it was super clear in 08, and I think that, frankly, Trump, you know, probably could have won the 2012 primary. Yeah, um, I think you know, like almost certainly would have won the 2012 primary, and and fr- probably could, uh, frankly, could have won the 2008 primary, or or, or Palin could have won the 2012 yeah. pi- primary. And this it was delayed, you know, the inevitable takeover of the populist wing of the party, the crazy wing, was only delayed four years because there were no good vessels for it. You know, Romney's yeah. opponents were like Rick Santorum and, and, like, New, Gingrich, and right? New Gingrich, who almost beat him, right? Yeah, like, right. Yeah, who still almost beat him despite yeah. the fact they were horrible candidates and has-beens, like, and and were really bad at like channeling the sort of populist rage that Palin and Trump were so good at channeling. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was super clear from 08. Do you think there were things Republican Party leaders could have done? Like like you write in the book about how like they just begin this dance, like particularly after, you know, there's sort of you go that like, I don't know how to like a little history here, like Bush wins in 04. Yep. Everyone thinks like. Two well-known political reporters wrote a book called The Emerging Republican Majority. Yeah. The view is Democrats would never gain power again. Republicans right. were, you know, were making gains with Latino voters and black voters were moving to their camp yeah. and Democrats were screwed. And then all of a sudden, George Bush between Iraq, Katrina, George Bush goes in the toilet. Democrats win the House and Senate. Obama wins a mar- by a margin no one ever possibly thought expected. And no one thought someone who looked or was named Barack Hussein Obama could get elected. And then the party is trying to, like, scratch its way back to relevance. Right. And as you write in the book, they get in bed with some the Tea Party far-right elements. Yeah. Was there a point, do you think, where someone in the party could have said, like McCain did in his rally, famously in 08, to the woman who called Obama Muslim, could have said no and could have maybe put a stop to this? Or were we inevitably on this path? I think we're inevitably on this path, but it could have been healthier. So there was no, the Tim Miller autopsy, compassionate conservatism, yay, yeah. climate change, gay marriage, uh, yeah. let's be nice to immigrants party was never happening. Okay, like that was never going to happen. And that was just wish casting by us in 2012, um, which I spent a lot of time talking about. <laughs> um, I'm interested, and, and if you look at, we're also myopic in, in America, but if you look globally, like every conservative party in the world right now yeah. in, in first world countries is like a nationalist, populist, conservative party. Yeah. Um, so, you know, these trends, you know, are not unique to us. So I, I, I'm interested in the counterfactual. This is like the, you know, real Marxism has never been tried. Yeah. Fact, like real, you know, good faith conservative populism has never been tried. I'm intrigued by like, Okay, let's say instead of trying to force feed the base, like we'll be nicer to immigrants, you know, and gays, we would have said, Bush screwed up with Iraq. 
you know, we're going to stop with the globalism and stop with the adventurous wars and we're going to stop with the trade that's like, you know, sending your jobs to China or whatever. And we're going to do more of a kind of protectionist, nationalist, you know, genuine, you know, policy shift in the party um, that tries to meet some of these voters' grievances, like the the legitimate grievances. Some of their grievances, as we've talked about, are based on race and bigotry. Some of them are legitimate, you know, like their communities have been hollowed out. The, it was the people that got sent to the war were not people from my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, like they have reason to be upset. So it, could that have happened, right? Could there have been like a Republican pivot more to like a responsible... Pop, it wouldn't have appealed to Tim Miller like that party, yeah. but could that party? Yeah, I, I don't know. Who, there's no responsible populace yeah, in the GOP right now. But if like, there's anyone bet, in that, yeah. If you look, I guess like let's say that you know hypothetically, you know, had the JD Vance before he turned into a you know conspiracy theorist freak, right? Yeah. Like had the JD Vance that wrote the book, you know, and then said, okay, I'm gonna just offer these you know more protectionist, nationalist policy agenda items. You know, could that person have, you know, offered a lead, uh, you know, a, a Republican party that looks more like this is a bad analogy this week, but like <laughs> Boris Johnson is on, you know, <laughs> right? Like maybe, I don't know. That would have been better than what we have. We're like our democracy is in threat right now. I, you know, I still would have left the party probably over that. But I, I think that that's an interesting it's an factual. It's interesting. Like, it's interesting to think about that because. Probably the reason that did not happen is not just like the magic of Donald Trump. It's also that the it's the incredible and probably irreconcilable tension between the even to this day, the sort of Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan economic agenda and the economic beliefs of the base. Right. You have this working class base. And uh, that, you know, generally, even though you would, they, as long as they don't know us from Barack Obama, they want government health care. They want Social Security. They want Medicare. They don't think it's great that Amazon is paying zero dollars in taxes. <laughs> uh, but so, what, you know, that sort of like was the, you know, through Steve Bannon, this is like one of Steve Bannon's sort of ideas after 2012 was we can't talk about that stuff. So we got to go tickle the right. you know culture war sides of their brain. So it's like, could you you have to sort of reshape the GOP? electorate to get there i think no you just had to dump the ryan agenda which i guess is again like someone could have instead of donald trump could have come into the 2016 primary and said i'm going to try to run a quixotic campaign where we dump the paul ryan trickle down agenda and that person might have won i I don't know the the real problem in my opinion which trump did sort of do yeah like yeah he but he also added all the yeah yeah, yeah, like the cruelty and the bigotry and the freak show and all the conspiracy so like okay so can you can you decouple those two things is the question and i kind of think no right because in the same in my original joke about marxism like the reason why conservative populism like in genuine policy terms can't really work is because you're always going to get you know beaten by somebody you know that can go into fox and go into cable and offer something that's more red meat right you know that that tickles people's grievances at at a deeper level and i so i just you know there's no infrastructure for this kind of thing right like you know the fox suits are not interested in a genuine populist like anti you know anti uh wall street party right like that's not what they're interested in they're happy with the tax cut agenda and like throwing some red meat about the ground zero mosque or the caravan or whatever Mm -hmm. to people and so i so i think that i think the media conservative media complex probably makes it impossible I mean, one thing you and I certainly had in common was we thought there was very little chance Donald Trump would win yeah, the election. That one. Uh, 
<laughs> that was a mess. Yeah, we were, we, were a lot, we were wrong about that. But not to do hypotheticals, but I have always sort of, like, I was wrong about who was going to win the presidency, but I was sure Donald Trump was going to win the primary. Yeah. I was positive of that because, and one thing, that's one of the things that when you're working for Obama is I got to see how these people reacted to Obama. Like, I got to sit in a room where a Republican congressman called him boy. Like, you sort of know what, Jeez. you know, what is happening there. And it's a, like, you, you, like, you're very... Is that, is that congressman in leadership now? <laughs> that congressman is not in Congress right now. Um, through because he got beat by someone more conservative, more racist than someone who would say that in public. Yes. Yeah. His problem is he kept his racism in the privacy of a conference room. Um, but like I had sort of I've been operating under the theory that the Republican Party was going to burn itself out and that would, would theoretically reform or change or something would happen after losing 08, 12 and 16. What did you think would happen if Trump, as you and I had both thought, had lost in 16, how would your party have reacted, your former party? Yeah, I don't right. think it would have changed much, to be honest, because this was a bottom-up thing. Um, I, I didn't. I just thought Trump was too boobish to win the primary yeah. in 2016, so I was wrong about that. But I, um, I, I did think a crazy person. Like I was like, if it isn't going to be Jeb, it's going to be a crazy. He's going to be a crazy person. Yeah. I thought it was probably more likely Cruz than Trump, but yeah. I thought that it was going to be one of those two. Um, and. You know, I say I write in the book like the story about Reince. I was the night I realized it was going to be Trump was like after one of the debates, and I met Reince um, Priebus, who was the RNC chair, my former boss, in a bar after the after the debate. And I was like, "You need to quit your job. Trump's about to win, and like you should just get out before it gets crazy for you." And um, he promised me that um, that he said, "Don't worry, um, I, we need to have a good person in the room, and if things get out of hand, then I'll quit." I <laughs> yes. promise you. I was like, he ended up getting fired by tweet, yeah. so uh, he did not live up to that promise. Um, so I, I, I saw that the, the, you know, this, the demand bottom-up was eventually going to push to the direction of a more populist route. Um, so, look, I think that well, Trump did right, lose the popular vote, right? So add, you know, a few at Michigan and a few of those states falling the other way. Um, I, I just don't—there's no evidence to me that the party pushes back to Marco, right? Um, you know, because all, the only groups that wanted that— already tried to stop Trump, right? Like, I was part of that when I read about this. I was in our principles pack, and it was all the big donors were funding us, and, you know, all of the mainstream politicians were pushing it. We tried to stop Trump for the primary in 2016, and voters didn't want it. So I, I think probably... You know, it, the question is who then is smart enough in 2020 to like learn from Trump and be one tick more and do what Ron DeSantis is doing right now, right? Be like one tick more normal, one tick more acceptable to elite types, you know, but still kind of feeding the the populace, the buddy fights, the owning the libsism, like the owning the libs kind of populist uh, style was going to win a pr primary no matter what in 2020. And so. Well, I'll come back to this at the end, but let's talk a little about the autopsy for a second for people yeah. who may not be familiar with internal party committee workings of a decade ago. It was a pretty important document. Yes. But I mean, oh, it yeah. is a pretty like it's a very significant point in history, like in political history about the party. And so talk a little bit about what that work was, what you guys found and sort of your reaction to having that uh, yeah. treated as it was. Yeah, yes. thanks. Yes, we grabbed like about 10 of the you know, smartest people in Republican politics. Mm -hmm. um, some of them you might have heard of, Elise Stefanik and John <laughs> Spicer and <laughs> me, yes. some others. Um, and uh, 
you know, we just looked at the Romney loss and said, like, what does the party need to do to not have this happen next time, right? And and put out a document full of re- recommendations. Um, and, uh, you know, the long and short of it was some of it was just blocking and tackling stuff. Like, the Obama people are way better at digital, and we should be better at that. And, like, we should have more offices and more cities. You know, there's, some of it was just boring political tactics. On the messaging side of things, um, this part of the document was headed up by Ari Fleischer, who is now a Fox News television <laughs> celebrity who's like Donald Trump Jr.'s best friend. So uh, and he like he PR man for hire by despots around the world. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah uh, Saudi Arabia's man in, man in New York. <laughs> yes. um, so he didn't heed his own advice, um, but he he led this up, and it was basically, you know, we need to soften language around abortion in particular, you know, in order to appeal more to suburban women. We need to soften language and maybe change our policy on immigration to to attract Latinos. Uh, we need to push criminal justice reform, which some Republicans at the time were already actually doing. There's kind of this Rand Paul push for that um, in order to attract more Black voters, and kind of through these, uh, and and he even suggested that we change policies on gay marriage and abortion privately that both got rejected, didn't make the final document, um, which I, I put some of those emails in the book. Um, but um, sorry, Ari. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, uh, you know, the, the short of it that came out was that that's how we kind of will broaden the, the coalition in the hopes that the Republicans can the next time win, you know, more of these purple, mm. purple states um, that, that Romney had lost. Uh, and uh, obviously, you know, Trump went ex- absolutely the opposite of that direction. Right. Um, and, and in some ways, which we, we just talked about, I think, one of our failings was that there was another path, right, through working class white communities, right, that maybe didn't necessarily need to do the bigotry of Trumpism, but that would have required changing, to your point, the Paul Ryanism of the yeah. economics, which nobody in this room wanted to do. And so essentially Trump, you know, uses our rec- uh, recommendations like toilet paper, wins the nomination. And like uh, the interesting thing for me that I tried to focus on in the book is there were nine of us. And so me and Sally Bradshaw totally quit the party over this. We're like, okay. And she was... She was Jeb Bush's top... Carl Rove. She was Jeb's Carl Rove. And so she just quit politics, opened a bookstore in Tallahassee, and got a tattoo that says, Speak Truth. So uh, (laughs) Sally's Sally's the hero of the book. Uh, She's just like, screw this, okay? I gave you the document about how the party can win and be nice to to minorities and women. Uh, And you didn't take it, so I'm out. Um, And then... You know, another portion of uh, people who I talk about kind of just end up being strategists who work on the outside of politics. They still are like, oh, the Trump thing's a little icky. Henry Barber is one of the characters. He's Haley Barber's, you might have heard of, son. Um, and then there's another group that says, screw this, I'm going whole hog with Trump. Um, and I don't care about all this. And that's Sean Spicer, Reince Priebus, Elise Stefanik, um, Ari. And um, some of these people interviewed with me. Some of them refused to. Elise sent me a note that said she reads my Twitter feed, so she will not be res- she will not be <laughs> participating in the book, um, despite the fact that we used to work together. But I, I, I want, and so I interviewed all the ones who wouldn't interview with me. I interviewed all Elise's friends. I looked at Politico Playbook was finally useful for something. I saw who went to her wedding, and so I called all the people that were at her wedding. Um, that was in Playbook to figure out, you know, to interview them. Be like, what the fuck happened to Elise? No. Sorry, excuse me. Um, and um, and so. So that is kind of how the formation of the second half of the book is trying to figure out how can like nine people who all saw that the party should get more compassionate and open and less bigoted, like go such different directions. And, you know, it, I mean, that document just like there was a moment where people believed in elements of it, right? Like yeah. 
the there was real moment like even Sean Hannity came out yes. for immigration reform yes. like the week after we put out the document yes. he was a good party man he's yes. like all right that's what we got to do we're for yeah. immigration reform yeah that's exactly like Murdoch came out for it and was advocating for it there was you know a the gang of eight Marco Rubio yeah. included yeah. were in the house they were for it and then you know one like obviously this was rejected by the base but sort of in the view of people who were working in the White House at the time, trying to get trying to see if we could take advantage of this moment to get immigration reform done. A key moment was when Eric Cantor, who was the House whip, lost his primary. I guess he was the House leader, yeah. the number two in leadership. Boehner's deputy, which is not something you probably want in your <laughs> in your Wikipedia page, but uh, lost his primary by a lot. Yeah. Do you think it's just the, that document was never going to it never had a path? Because there there is a history here, too, which is after Bush won in 04, Ken Melman, Bush's campaign manager, goes to the RNC, declares that we are going to build this multicultural, diverse electorate, hired people to, get, to try to focus on Latino voters and black voters. You mentioned the McCain-Kennedy bill. My experience with that bill was I was working in the Senate at the time and constituent mail came to a halt because conservative voters were mailing bricks to the Senate with a note attached that said, build the wall, which should have been a real sign of what was going to happen. And that was in 06. Um, was there ever a path for this or this is just this is where we were ended up? I don't think there was ever yeah. a path for it. I don't I, you know, again, I. I I'm not of an inevi- a person of inevitability of history. Yeah. Like I do think history is contingent and like leadership matters. Mm-hmm. And some, uh, you know, had, had like Marco been a little better, right? Like could Marco have no, figured he out? Have been no, I, he could right? not have been I mean, better. But, like could somebody like that, <laughs> yeah. right, have like jammed through an immigration reform and then thrown the base some red meat on something else, yeah. right? I mean, that's how you would have had to have done it. Uh, no, I mean, like I said, I, I just the base was not up for this um, from the start, and so eventually there was going to be a revolt. And like the the distance between Repu- what a pro- Republicans elites wanted and what the base wanted was untenable. Like I don't I don't think that it that, that Donald Trump was inevitable. I don't think that that doesn't mean that had a few more Republicans showed a little more cojones, like we couldn't have snuck through sixty votes. And it did come close. Yeah. I mean, right? I, you know, even John McCain was like one of the heroes of this book. Like voted against the Dream Act yeah. in two, uh, 2008, which was like sick, um, you know, because he st- was worried about his J.D. Hayworth talk radio primary. It's just like, do you really want to be a sender that bad? I, you know, and then he saves Obamacare in the end. So yeah, whatever, 50-50. Yes. I don't yeah. know. I like the Dream Act better than Obamacare on <laughs> yeah. balance. I kind of wish you would have uh, done the thumbs down on the first one. But um, uh, so, no, I mean, a, a few there could have been some examples of people like taking one from the team like Liz Cheney is right now. But like eventually that tension was going to have to be resolved. So where does it end? Right. Like we we're, we have yeah. a two party system that is it's, it's basically locked in and how they, the Electoral College has decided the Republican Party is on a path is getting worse since Trump, in, yeah. my, in my view. For sure. And. You know, and more and much more dangerous in my view. For sure. And so, like the idea, like if they lose to Biden again, is there any point? Like, what is there anything that you think could change the trajectory of the party? Force a reckoning because Democrats, not in a dangerous direction, but after we lost in '88, the party, all of the the various groups within the party, we've now lost in '80, '84, 80, and '88. Yep. All the various groups in the party got together, they adopted, so they sort of, everyone came on board and were willing to make some tough changes, many of which I don't ideologically agree with, but were probably necessary to win in 1992. Like, nothing focuses the mind like losing several elections in a row. Although Republicans haven't won the popular vote, they've won the popular vote once since 1988. Uh, But is there anything that you can see 
that would, or do we just have to wait for this generation to retire? Uh, no, I mean, hopefully we make it that long. Yeah. Um, I, well, Trump could die. Yeah. But I feel like Trump's not really the problem. That's the best thing that it could happen. No, well, yeah. he is the problem because here's the, here, here's the problem. Here's where, why he's the problem is that like the, well, I'll back into the Trump death thing. Okay. Um, here's the, here, here's, but don't, but don't miss it. Cause I think people here might want to hear it. So. I'll get back. We'll, we'll get back to the Trump death. Thing. Yes. The best possible scenario is that the party is again, I go back to Boris Johnsonism that like the party says, okay, you know, Trump is just so unviable electorally that, um, he, you know, that we are going to, you know, move on to somebody like Ron DeSantis or whatever, who is not great. Okay, to say the least, um, but does not share Trump's psychopathy. Right? Like the, the unique dangers that we have ahead of us are related to Trump's psychopathy, because as bad as Ron DeSantis is, like you have to be a uniquely deranged person to be able to continue to keep up a lie for three years to tell people that you think that Hugo Chavez, who's dead, like broke into our voting machines and <laughs> changed the numbers just to hurt you, not to hurt any other Republicans. <laughs> and then keep telling people that for years on end where 50, 60 million people believe it. Like, yeah, but every like member of the Republican Party says that now. Yeah, but, but, but they have to go along with him, right? Yeah. To be the person who's like, I am sticking with this crazy yeah. freaking lie. Like, I just, you, you have to be completely psychotic, you know? And Ron DeSantis, for all of his problems, which there are many, which we can talk about, like, I, I just don't think that he's a complete psychopath, right? Like, eventually, you become weak. A, a human wants to um, uh, connect what they actually believe in their brain with what comes out of their mouth. Like, you can convince yourself of a lie over time, but it's very hard to convince yourself of this level of a lie. So I think that... Um, Donald Trump dying would really help as far as the <laughs> democracy surviving. Um, I don't think that he's going to, though. Um, so that takes us to, I think, the other really bad outcome, which is, you know, we come up to 2024 and he is running. And it's, I think, very hard to imagine how people, no matter what the result is, people accept the result of the election. And I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, say that it make any equivalency or say the left is like the people that stormed the Capitol, but just because of the way Donald Trump has behaved for good reason, uh, I don't, I do not think that, that, that people on the left will accept him as a legitimate president again. I think that's, would be a very dangerous situation. Obviously, if he loses, uh, you know, I think we got very lucky. Uh, this is like macabre, but the January 5th, like, blood toll wasn't higher, right? And I think that if he loses again, um, it would be even more dangerous. So I think that worried to run 2024 is really, is really ugly. And I think that's why him leaving the stage is better. The party itself, you know, is going to range from like the best case scenario is somebody like Boris Johnson, who's like a pretty normal conservative who kind of pretends, you know, to, you know, to plays for the ribs for TV <laughs> from time to time yeah. when he has to, like to Ron DeSantis, who is actually, you know, kind of quasi authoritarian, but like wouldn't actually challenge an election and, you don't think you, know, you want to take I a bet on that i don't yeah let's take a bet on that okay. what do you want to bet like t- tickets to the warriors game or something yeah tickets um, to the warriors game i mean i right. hope we never have to come will to the society game? still be alive yeah. will the warriors still be playing at yeah. that point <laughs> if, uh, if ron DeSantis starts in a totalitarian state yeah. you know to um you know a trump or tucker right like this is the worst case yeah. so I, I that is like liz cheney god love her is not walking through the door even like a glenn young you know what i mean even like those people aren't going to win a republican primary yeah. so um that, that, that's like the range of options. Yeah. Ron DeSantis seems to me like Trump on Adderall, like just like just as dangerous, but more focused. 
Like, I agree he's probably unlikely. Like, that's what worries a lot of progressives is Trump, because he is such an idiot, left so much meat on the bone in terms of what he could have done with that office to damage the things we care about, to put himself in power. He just was too... Like, Ron DeSantis probably isn't hiring Rudy Giuliani as his attorney to try to prosecute right. these cases, right? <laughs> so this is what I think. Like, Ron DeSantis is probably more normal, dangerous as far as, like, dismantling the administrative state. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, Trump was completely incompetent at being able to do that, yeah. right? You know, like, old-school extremist Republican yeah. stuff. Like, we'll shut down the EPA or, you know, yeah. the Depart- right? like, that kind of stuff. Like, I think that Ron DeSantis is super, you know, you know normal, dangerous because uh, he'll be more effective at that. Like, the existential threat. Like, yeah. we are going to storm the capital. Capital and the democracy, you know, get secretary of states, you know, we're going to install Rube secretary of states to like say that they're not going to count the votes the right way. Um, I think that's a not well, it's not uniquely Trump because now he's like recruited a lot of, you know, like Mastriano and Pennsylvania and all these. But most of these guys are so weird. That, like their best, you know, case for them is like a, like a secretary of state. Yes. <laughs> but like, we can have a lot of local little local skirmishes. Right. Yeah. Like, I think that's going to happen. And this is all stuff that this is why I, I say Trump is so unique. Like this never would have happened if it like wasn't for Trump. Right. Has it been somebody else that had lost like the notion that now there's going to be this cult of people propping up in, in secretary of state's offices and governor's offices in all these states who like no longer think that elections are valid and that votes should be counted fairly. Um, I mean, that's really scary. And like, and that is, you know, happening across the board right now. And I'm worried, you know, particularly if like the economy doesn't change between now in November, that even the freaks are going to get sort of washed in in a wave. And, and we, we get into a situation in 2024 where there are a lot more, a lot fewer of the Brad Raffensperger types and a lot more like Christian right. nationalists, yeah. like people who are happy to, to happy to overturn an election. So there's some uplifting commentary. <laughs> <That's right>. Um, <laughs> The what is well, let me let's take a couple audience questions yep. here, real fast. Um, I can't wait to hear the answer to this. Take what chance, what chance do you think Liz Cheney has in the as the have in the Republican? Zero percent, zero percent, yeah. <laughs> what about I love, I mean, look, Liz Cheney. I hate it. Okay, like back in the normal times, like I was a moderate Republican, Liz Cheney was like as far right as as imaginable within the caucus okay like she she rejected her own sister for like being a lesbian and like opposed gay marriage i donated to mike enzi who i do not like uh in his primary against liz cheney just because i was so pissed at liz cheney right and so like for liz cheney now to to have this moment like got I, i think it's great that she's doing it but i think that this just shows that this has nothing to do with policy like this is all about grievance and, and anger and conspiracy, like that Liz Cheney would get overthrown in favor of Elise Stefanik, who was like, a, who was a Tim Miller moderate rhino squish, you know, yeah. like that was her. But, but now, you know, because she's willing to go along with the Trump cult, you know, that, that, you know, she gets to replace Liz Cheney. So, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, uh, insight about where the party is, but no, uh, once you've crossed Trump, she's, she's got 0% chance. And so would you say that probably the only Republican who has crossed Trump who has a chance of surviving just over the next medium term years is Mitt Romney? 
Surviving what? Like just in the Senate? In the, in the party. Just oh, remaining. Yeah, in the, well, Everyone else has retired or lost yeah, the party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mitt Romney will survive. Utah is, is unique for various ways. We need to get into that. But um, I, I look at state offices, um, you know, Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. And Raffensperger did survive, which is great. And there are a few green shoots. Mm-hmm. I think the governors, it's a little bit of a different thing. Voters, you know, kind of want their governor to like be competent in yeah. most cases, right? Because they have a real job to do. And they sort of see senators as yeah. like, you don't have a real job. Like, all I want you to do is fact. Post. That's a fact. Twitter. Yes. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that there might be some examples of some that survive, but in national office or the notion someone could run for president. No. And, and, and poor Liz Cheney is like going to get crushed by these freaks in her uh, in her in the House primary that she's in. The uh, what is interesting, I think, when you look at those primaries, which is why I think Mitt Romney is unique in this, which is Trump can be anti you. And you can win, yeah. but you can't be anti-Trump, yeah, right? Exactly. That's how like Nancy May survived. Yeah. That's how, I mean Kemp. I mean Kemp was a Trump Republican through and through. He just decided to do math for one day in his life, and yeah. he had to. The voters, right? This is high breakdown. The voter, the Republican primary, most of them. It's, it's about half of the primary are just good, solid Republicans. They like Trump, but they're not in a cult. But they like him fine, and um, you know. But if he endorses somebody else. They might not care. Forty percent are Trump cult, right? So you know, if you get Trump endorsement, you have a pretty good chance. And then like five percent are you know varying degrees of of you know ready to move on from Trump. And so you know, if you can put together the fifty and the five, you can win a primary. Right? Yeah. Like Trump can you you know if Trump endorses somebody else, you can still win. But if you're anti-Trump, then you go down to the five percent. Yeah, right. And because those are the only people. And Liz might get a little bit better because some Democrats will go over in Wyoming and you know some Cheney loyalists. But I, you know, it's like a twenty percent thing. It's really, it's sad. I mean, it, it shows how much courage she's had though. So um, I mean, she's really blown up her career over this. So thank God for her and Kinsinger. Yeah. But it's kind of crazy. It's just the two of them. And do you think Trump's going to run in 24? So I can't get inside his brain. Um, oh, that would know. be a hell of a book. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> uh, here's, what I, here's, how I, here's what I think. It's really hard for me to imagine Donald Trump being the opening act for Ron DeSantis and like sitting down in Mar-a-Lago and let everybody talk about how great Ron DeSantis is. That, does, that seems to go against everything in his, in his psychology that I have observed as a Trump watcher for the past however too many years. So, you know, he's not going to go down and just become a painter like George W. Bush and turn <laughs> off the Twitter machine. Yes. I just that's just not him. So I think that he's going to run because of that. Just like jealousy, like human, the black hole in his heart, like refu- will not let him let Ron DeSantis take over. And do you think if Trump runs, he'll face a real primary? And I don't count like a Larry Hogan moderate suicide mission, but like, would you I think tried it's so hard to get Larry Hogan to run a suicide mission <laughs> last time? <laughs> I, we were, I was sending people to Annapolis to yeah. recruit him. Um, uh, but do you think like a DeSantis or a Tom maybe, Cotton or a maybe, Josh Hawley would maybe, run against him? I mean, they would have a lot of money, right? Because all these guys, all these donors that funded the stuff that I was doing back in 2016 and then completely switched teams as soon as they wanted access um, in the general election once Trump won. All those guys, all those guys will give money to somebody else again. They would, you know, if they could just snap their fingers and make them disappear, they would. Um, So I think it'll be tempting um, for somebody to challenge him. And if that, whoever that were to be, uh, what advice would you give them? And I'm not suggesting how you... Like, I'm not saying this is like a John Huntsman Redux yeah, yeah, or a yeah, Tim sure. Miller or Republican Squish or whatever you want to grab. But like, if you were just like my goal, I'm going to I'm like, I'm going to sell my soul. I'm going to because what we have to beat Trump. Like if Jerron DeSantis or someone was running, like what message would you give them to beat Trump? It's really dark. Um, but like out Trump him. Right. Say, 
I'm sorry. I, lo- I thought that, you know, your message was great and that um, I totally agree with you that the left is ruining the country. And, um, you know, what we really need is somebody that is actually able to build the wall and somebody that um, is not did not work with Bill Gates on the fake vaccines. <laughs> Honestly, I just I, like that. I mean, somebody that could actually beat Joe Biden. Yeah, that to me is the one. I would not. I would not take that job. By the yeah. way, I just wrote. Yes. A, I just. I just wrote a book. Yeah. I just wrote a book to clean my conscience. Yeah. But um, you know, if someone is out there with no conscience that's watching, that, was, that would be my advice to them. Yeah. For how I to mean, Donald Trump. That's what I've always thought is the best message against Trump from another Republican is that Trump's a loser because there is this real tension between like the Trump, his Twitter, his Twitter feed, RIP, I guess his truths on Truth Social, Fox News, that Joe Biden is basically weekend at Bernie's president. And he was able to mastermind a criminal conspiracy to steal the election of Donald <laughs> Trump. And it's like, it's just sort of like you can't be like you like if I was a Republican, I'd be like, you couldn't beat sleep. Like you did great things. Yeah. You know, you, you couldn't beat put that. You, you put all these people in the judge. You couldn't beat Sleepy Joe. Meaning somebody who can beat Sleepy Joe would be the way I would do it if I was Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that's sure possible. I think it's a really outside chance. The problem is it's really hard to execute. Yeah. Right. And like once you become in, once you enter a primary against Trump, you become anti-Trump by definition. Right. And so, you know, to, to, to run a whole campaign under the hot, bright lights, as you know, and being like, you know, I like Mr. Trump. Mm. He's pretty great. And I greatly admire him. But, you know, uh, he should have built the wall a little better. And yeah. he didn't run a very good campaign against Sleepy Joe. But I, I voted for him. And he should, yeah. You know, that gets hard to do that sort of two yeah. step. Um, and so I, I think it's I think it'd be a very outside chance. I, I don't think a zero percent chance that someone that, that could work. You talk about how um, you, these Republicans you talk to, one of the reasons that they uh, worked for Trump or they've justified it is that they find Democrats and liberals annoying. This is the Prius coffee colada thing, yeah. which is, I think, as you point out in your book, a Dunkin' Donuts creation. <laughs> <laughs> like a three ninety nine Dunkin' Donuts yes. coffee is what's bothering her? I don't know. Whatever, man. you got to be mad about something. Yeah. Um, but there is some sense, at least, uh, you know, among... Some political commentators, this shows up in focus groups. It was in a DCCC presentation to the caucus a few months ago that one of the problems that Democrats may be facing in this election is that voters find us annoying. Yeah. Do you like I do your, think this is a problem? Yeah. And what do you like? What do you think drives that? How much of that is real? How much of that is us losing the messaging war to Fox, et cetera? Like, would you have any advice for us on how to be less annoying? Be less annoying. Or convince convince people we're less annoying? No. um, Yeah, look, I I mean, I I think that that some of this is obviously media-driven, right? And so you have this, like, huge right-wing media ecosystem from TikTok all the way up through Fox, right? That's just like, liberals are annoying, liberals are crazy, right? That's in front of people's face. And so I think that that media part, this is your book, so yeah. I should have asked you, you yeah. about that question, how to break through that. Um, I think that's, that's one element of it. Um, I, but I, I do also think, just from like a messaging standpoint, um, if you look at, we're going to get really nerdy for one second, we can do a book yeah. stuff after, but if you look at Democrats' ads, like, they're really good, okay? Democrats' ads are very focused on kitchen table issues and how the Republicans are extreme and they don't care about you. And, I can, and you know, we're going to actually have results. All they want to talk about is, you know, the 2020 election or the abortion stuff. And, and you know, I, I care about your life and your family. 
Okay, but then Democratic candidates' Twitter feeds like are very like you know much kind of wrapped up in the social you know issues of the day and these little fights when they start talking. Like I met with a Senate candidate the other day who was just asking me for my advice, Democratic Senate candidate, and I and I, I said to him, I said, I, so I went through your feed and it's like the other day you were talking about how you know all of our wealth is is stolen from native lands and i was like that might be true okay that mm. might be true but like we're not at a berkeley mm. conference here you know like you're running for for senate in a in a swing state right so like you got to think about what the median voter wants and this person's tv ads are talking about what the median person's want, right so i mm. think that there's a little bit of a, this sort of disconnect mm-hmm. um so that's my one piece of advice and and i do think that the covid stuff you know for a while worked for democrats favor mm-hmm. because um, because you know Trump was so incompetent and Trump was COVID. spreading it to people. Yeah, yes. Trump like literally tried to kill Chris Christie, which yes. is my favorite scene in the book. Um, <laughs> Chris Christie waddles back to him after Trump literally nearly killed him and then <laughs> called him in the hospital and was like, you're not going to blame this on me? Like, that's a real story. Yes. He didn't like send him flowers or soup or M&Ms or whatever Chris Christie would want. Um, um, uh, so I think that this worked in, in, in Democrats' favor. But man, like after the vaccines came out, like, uh, you know, don't throw fruit at me. But like yeah. people are sick of it. People are sick of it. And so having to be reminded about COVID all the time, I, I, I do think, you know, is like rubs, rubs people the wrong way. And like there are certain types of voters that have been turned off for that. And that kind of piles on all this media environment yeah. stuff that we're talking about. So like the, the real legitimate annoyances <laughs> get exacerbated by these fake annoyances <laughs> that get brought up in the media. In the book, you write, you know, in sort of talking about sort of where you feel that you were culpable as part of being part of this political culture in Washington that was yeah. like very focused on the game, right? Like people call it the game. I'm back in the game. Yeah. It's about winning and losing sort of that maybe the stakes, the people who at least play the game are least affected by what actually happens. Everyone's going to be fine. Washington's right. a boom town and good times are bad. Losing consultants get hired to work on races all the time. And it was I just very- saw a little fact today that my old boss on the Romney campaign got hired to help Herschel Walker. So, you know, life is life. Boom time. Who was that? Who was Gail, that? Gail Gitchow. She was your oh, counterpart. That's right. Your counterpart. <laughs> You've got a great successful podcast. She's helping Herschel Walker now. That's so, right. you know, the money keeps rolling in. I forgot. I totally forgot that person existed. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, Hi, Gail. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> I was wondering if we would get like the seven people who worked on the McCain away campaign and then came out to Silicon Valley right afterwards. I'm very grateful they did to be in the audience today. So, um, but I, speaking of that political culture, I'm like one of the things that uh, in 2016 that I talked a lot about with sort of my Obama colleagues, we talked about it on the precursor to podcast uh, to Pod Save America was could this happen to could something like this happen to Democrats, right? So first, do you think that is, is there a world in which like, it's going to be like, it's obviously not the same. It's not obviously going to be sort of, uh, our coalition is different, but could Democrats find themselves like working for, like, could we have a candidate, uh, who we, who we thought was dangerous that we all worked for anyway? (laughs) 
Yeah, well, I think that some of my I know I, I don't think so, but um, and why? Because I, co- yeah, I think the voter coalitions are different. Yeah, basically, I like the Republican voters just had no antibodies to crazy because yeah. most of them wanted crazy. There are some Democratic voters that want crazy, but the Democratic coalition is much more diverse, right? Uh, you know, literally and, and racially diverse, but also uh, education level, financial level. And uh, my favorite tweet maybe for 2020 was like the Joe Biden coalition stretches from Angela Davis to Bill Crystal. You know, it's just like so because of that, because it's a lot of college educated suburban types, older um, uh, black voters in particular, you know, are much more resistant to a lot of like the crazy stuff. I, could that change eventually, like yeah. 30 years from now? Sure. But like right now, I think that the Democratic coalition is pretty resistant to somebody like a, whatever a, Demo- a liberal Trump would be, which is probably like Trump, actually. Trump yeah. could have just been a Democrat. Yeah. Like yeah. In the 80s, he probably was a Democrat, right? Um, but uh, anyway. Um, in, our, in our podcast days, our version of Trump, that the person we picked to be yeah. like, who would be the hypothetical Democratic Trump, which this did not age well at all, but was Kanye West. Kanye. Like, what if Kanye had become Right, West? yeah. So, uh, so the thing that I do think is similar that, like, worries me, that I, I would just, as I, look at, as I look at it from the outside and kind of look at it back in, in the game element of it, is the media part of it, right? Like, and my, I feel like, complicity with, and again, like, it's not a parallel. Like, there's not really a Democratic Steve Bannon, right? right. But, like, this notion of uh, we are constantly feeding our voters rage juice yep. right like and every day at, when at my job at america rising was to come up with some other crazy thing some liberal did to make people mad and you can see this now on absolute steroids from when i did it back in yep. 2013 like we were just saying there's a libs of tiktok feed if it's yep. just like here's the craziest lib in your life um I see this, though, on the left, right? And, like, you know, that, and I don't, you don't really know where that comes, right? And there is, like, these resistance Twitter feeds and, you know, left-wing media outlets and some of even my colleagues and MSNBC sometimes. It's just, like, every day I'm going to give you your daily dose of rage yeah. and make you mad about how bad the right is. Most of the times they're true things. Yeah. Some days, you know, it feels a little bit like hyperbole. And, mm-hmm. like, shouldn't we be talking about something else? Or, like, shouldn't we be giving people constructive things that they could be doing? Um, so, I, 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 that's like one parallel, this sort of game of the political media incestuousness and, and feeding people's anger where it's like a little bit fun for us almost, or like it's your job to like get clicks and get yeah. retweets and, and, and the impact on the people who aren't in on the joke, you know, I, I just don't know how that will turn out, but yeah. you can imagine a really aggrieved democratic electorate emerging, um, you're already seeing that, right? And 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 so then, how does that manifest? Like, again, probably not in Donald Trump, but maybe in some unhealthy ways. Yeah, I think about it a lot. Um, both, like, I think when you write about sort of, it's not nihilism. I think yeah. that among the consultant class of just like this is our business, this is what we do. Right. We're all kind of buddy buddy in Washington anyway. Like we, you know, we like we will we will try to savage the boss of the other person, then we'll go have beers, right. and then we'll go work together on corporate clients, which is right. pretty, which I think that's, that is the thing that's changed a little bit since Trump, just because people can't really be in the same room anymore. And that's probably good. In my right, view, yeah. I actually found that like when I worked in CF, I found that part really fucking gross actually was, uh, that sort of camaraderie, like that the, there's like real stuff there, but I do like you do a thing where you go through all the different, you do this in the context of why people supported Trump, 
like why your friends and former colleagues supported Trump and you have like a bunch of archetypes to do it, which is, is a great section of the book everyone should read. But it's also a set of archetypes about people who are in politics and why they're in politics. Right. right? Yeah. And I was trying to identify myself in that group, <laughs> which is very disturbing and uncomfortable. Yeah. Where'd, uh, you, find, where'd you find yourself? Uh, somewhere. Messianic complex. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. All the messianic people end up in communications. The very important part. <laughs> um, I like, I, I thought of myself, but like I was someone who like, i was raised a Democrat. I cared about like politics. I, we talked about it in my house. I got into it at a young age. But what I loved, at least in the, in the beginning days, was like the intensity of the winning and losing, right? The campaign. Right. Right? That was like for an overly competitive person. Yeah. That's right. And then you, obviously everyone in your group, like you talk about people who want to be in the mix. Right. Everyone in politics wants to be in the mix. If you don't want to be in the mix, you're not in politics, right? Like, yeah. as you point out, there are a lot of people who pretend not to be in the mix and like, that's their shtick, which is I never talk to reporters, yeah. right? But I definitely want every reporter to know who I am yeah. as someone who doesn't talk to reporters. Um, but, and I've, I was sort of thinking in that context of reading it, like whether that, I think that that changed a little bit on the Democratic side in ways it didn't on the Republican side in, in part yeah. because Obama won, right? And Obama was a different, sort of character i think that yeah i actually think the democrat i think this is there's some areas of similarity like the rage juice i was just talking yeah. about i think that the one area of difference especially as you get younger than us yeah. is like the cultures on the campaign cultures on both sides have completely diverged and the republican kids are f- nihilists like yeah. like really freaky nihilists like yeah. they they just like enjoy trolling and like that's what because it's trump right so it's like if i was attracted to like george bush being a compassionate conservative yeah. like they were attracted to trump who's a good troll and so like that's why they take these jobs like if you meet the house the house communication staffer for a random republican house yeah. member it's like it's disturbing okay yeah. the democratic younger staffers right now are super earnest like in a way that i think it almost hurts democratic candidates sometimes right yeah. so like you, it's almost like the whole, like the opposite side of this pendulum, right? We yeah. need to have this balance. I write about this in the book. It's like co- politics is still a competition, right? So there's nothing wrong with being a little competitive. You just have to have self-awareness, know where your red lines are, you know, not yeah. be willing to work for a complete sociopathic yeah. monster, right? Um, the Democrats almost fall. Sometimes I, I worry that younger staffers like way over here where they're so earnest that they're like having their politicians say stuff that's like not actually helpful, but that is that is true. And so that's a nice impulse. But I, I actually think the cultures have completely diverged in ways that that make the Republicans scarier, but also pr- probably a little bit more effective in politics. Right well, it's now. like I don't know what the median age of a House staffer is, but you're like in your early 20s. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So yeah. if you're like if you're 24 years old. Donald Trump was the leader of the Republican Party when he went to college. Yeah, Yeah. basically. And if you are anywhere between, I mean, Obama was basically the leader of the Democratic Party or the person in your knowledge, if you are anywhere from 24 to 40 something right now. Yeah, or you were brought in by Bernie. Yeah. Yeah, which is, or or Elizabeth Warren or something like that. Yeah. Um, What do you think is going to happen in the midterms? Uh, It's going to be a bloodbath. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that the Senate is um, going to be uh, potentially savable for the Democrats because the Republican candidates are so freaky. I mean, uh, you look at the France model, right? Like, Macron had pr- Biden-y um, approval ratings. Yeah. Um, pretty bad approval ratings. But he ends up winning kind of handily because Le Pen is, like, a bigoted freak, right? And so... Uh, could you see that happening like in Georgia with Herschel Walker, as we just brought up, maybe Arizona with Mark Kelly, who's very normal and mainstream versus like a Blake Masters, like a 
Peter Thiel, like racist kind of, uh, you know, person that has no real uh, skills. Um, like what are some of the other races? That, um, Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz. Thank you. In Pennsylvania, Warren Johnson's gotten pretty weird. Like, can you, so can you steal some of these that you wouldn't have usually yeah. won if you're the Democrats? Uh, I worry a little bit about like the, then some surprises you, you lose. Um, like like Republicans nominated a pretty normal person in Colorado, for example. It's maybe their most normal Senate candidate. Um, it's my home state. That could be a surprise. So I, like the house is gone now. And and I, I worry, I, again, if gas prices are this high and just historically the first midterms, you get surprises where like a, a Republican will win, you know, in Rhode Island or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I think that it's going to be pretty ugly. And, and I, the thing that worries me the most, um, uh, not to be too dar, is... Um, it's like Secretary of State's races, right? Like where people don't vote, but people don't know who their candidate is. It's just party line. And so if the Democratic base is really depressed and Republican base is, is not, and, um, you know, we're going to have a lot of like stop the steal conspiracy theorists in Secretary of State's offices, which is pretty concerning. Yeah, it's uh, the the Senate map is sort of candidate dependent, like it was in 2010 when Democrats yeah. lost 63 House seats, but held on to the Senate. Yeah. Because Republicans, which I'll just have been another canary in the coal mine, kept nominating complete <laughs> lunatics yeah. for winnable seats. Um, are there any Democratic candidates out there, Democratic politicians, you think, who are doing things well these days? I mean, I'm a Jared Polis stan. Um, I don't think that he has a federal, a national approach, mm-hmm. but um, I, I, he, Go- governor he's, a governor, sorry, he's a governor of Colorado. Um, he's super popular. He's avoided the annoying liberal stuff a little bit yeah. at perfect times. Like he did not do mask mandates after the mm-hmm. vaccines came out. Um, you know, my dad is my bellwether for this. He's a uh, he was he's featured in the book as yelling at me for being too mean to Mike Pence. <laughs> he understood he understood me not liking Trump, but he's like, what a, poor Mike. Pence, you're, uh, you don't like him either? And I was like, come on, Dad. Um, but even my dad's kind of fine about Jared Polis. I don't think yeah. he's going to vote for him, but he's not angry. So I think he's doing a good job. Um, you know, I think Pete did a good job. I guess I'm picking all the gays. Pete did a good job on <laughs> yes. Fox this weekend. Um, he's he's, uh, he's I'm, I'm, uh, The bench, though, is, is concerning. I think Mark Kelly is uh, in Arizona yeah. is doing a good job. What do you think about John Fetterman? I like Fetterman. I think yeah. so. I think the Democrats have three models. We don't really know. Like yeah. in this post-Trump era, what is your model? Right? It's working class. We're gonna we're gonna undermine the Republican advantage among working class whites. This is your yeah. Fetterman model. If people don't know. Him, he's like the six six dude who just wears a sweatshirt from Pennsylvania. And um, I'm I'm intrigued by that. He's a little too liberal for my taste, but I think that he could. If he wins this year, who the hell knows? I mean, he might be a Trump presidential person, um, I think, and a unique thing. Then you have like the Pete and Mark Kelly and Polis model, which is I'm going to appeal to suburban, you know, folks and the Biden coalition, you know, maybe not excite the base as much. And then you have like a Stacey Abrams model, right, which is I'm going to really try to max out the base um, turnout. I think that in a different year, that would probably work well. I'm I'm concerned for her. That's not going to work well this year. Um, and it's hard to say. I mean, maybe in some cases in certain states, the different models are different. But I think that's a problem for the Democrats right now is they don't is we don't really know. I'd love to kind of test 2020 five different ways to yeah. know better or 2022, five different ways to know better for 2024. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like the Fetterman or Kelly or Abrams seem to be the seem to be the options. We're, we have time for one more question. OK, um, what do you want people to take away from your book? Well, let me, let me put it this way. You, I think I'm, I'm going to assume you wrote this book for a, a lot of people out there who found themselves in your position, who at early in your career starting to grow uncomfortable with the party and you're trying to send a message to them. What is that message? Yeah. Um, 
that you should quit your job if you feel gross about it. Yeah. Um, I guess is the short message. Yeah. I, the book at its core is about, and I think I hope that that it's fun and interesting about politics for political junkies, and that you know obviously it's a book about politics. But I tried really hard to have some universal themes for people that even who are not in politics mm-hmm. that they can take away from this book. That oftentimes in our lives, like we face these choices um, and these challenges either in our careers or sometimes outside of our careers. And, and the easy thing to do is like tell yourself a comforting story, which is like, I don't have to do the hard thing here, yep. right? Like I can go along to get along because of X, Y, and Z. And that it's important actually to reflect on that and to think about whether, you know, what you're doing is within your integrity. And I think that looking back, like my regrets is I really, to your question earlier, I saw this in 2008. I saw it. I knew and I probably should have bailed then. And, um, you know, I'm hopeful, and I've heard from some 20-somethings that are reading this, that they, um, that that, that they get that message. Well, I hope someone in the party leadership gets that message. But I, don't, I don't think that Kevin McCarthy's changing his behavior after reading why we did it, I don't think Kevin, McCar- I don't I think Kevin McCarthy's reading. Stoppable stuff. Right. <laughs> Fair point. Yes. All right. Our thanks to Tim Miller, author of the amazing new book. Why we did it. It is a great book about politics, a great book about this moment in American history. I highly encourage everyone to buy it and read it. I'd like to thank our audience for watching and participating here live. Tim will be signing books outside in a few moments. If you'd like to watch more programs or support Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org/slash online. Thank you and stay safe, everyone. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Before we begin, we want to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization providing humanitarian assistance to people living in or fleeing Ukraine because of the war. Outright Action International is an organization dedicated to fighting for the human rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, and queer people everywhere. In response to the Russian invasion, Outright established a Ukraine fund to support local partners in Ukraine and neighboring countries who are providing emergency assistance to LGBTIQ people in need of safe shelter, food, medical care, transportation for those fleeing the country, and other types of humanitarian support. Because mainstream humanitarian systems too frequently leave LGBTIQ people behind. We encourage you to learn more about how to support Outright's important work by visiting outrightinternational.org slash Ukraine. Thank you for listening.